Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Merrim. Jane, Evan, great to be with you guys. Hey, Susan. Good morning to you both. Okay, deep breath, a subject we've been avoiding and yet knowing it was important to tackle. It's been more than 100 days since the horrific attack of October 7th and this new war between Israel and Hamas. Now it finally appears that the conflict is approaching something of an inflection point. This week it was announced that CIA Director William Burns plans to travel to Europe to try to broker a longer-term de-escalation of the war with key counterparts from the Middle East. The Israeli military on the ground in Gaza claims to be transitioning to a more targeted, less destructive phase of the conflict. Meanwhile, of course, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, for his part, continues to talk about, quote-unquote, total victory and the elimination of Hamas. At the same time, whether it's coming from the United Nations, from the International Court of Justice, the international press, or even increasingly the halls of the U.S. Congress, pressure on Netanyahu to ramp down military activity in Gaza and finally plan for an end to the conflict is mounting. This pressure, of course, isn't only being felt by Netanyahu. Here in Washington, President Biden is also struggling to navigate the increasingly fraught politics of this war in the United States, especially among his own Democratic Party in the lead-up to the 2024 election, all of which is made more complicated by the fact that President Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu's relationship carries decades of baggage, and by this point, more than a little bad blood. This week, finally, we'll take a closer look at the political ramifications of the Israel-Hamas war in both countries and where the conflict might go from here. For the first half of the show, we have a special guest, not just any guest, our esteemed editor-in-chief, yes, and boss, David Remnick. David, thank you so much for coming out and joining us today. Pleasure to see you guys, even from long distance. You know, we're so grateful that you have somehow managed, and that's a whole other show how you did it, but to both be our editor and to fly back and forth to Israel a couple times since this horrible uh, attack on October 7th. So you have a lot more sense of kind of ground truth than we do here in Washington. And we thought it would be great just to, to start with that before we get to the politics. What what are we missing here in our politics? What do we not understand about the dynamics in Israel that we should right now? I think one of the most striking things, Susan, is how the sides, if that's what you want to call it, see the world so entirely differently in an emotional sense, a political sense, and um, and a historical sense as well. So in the Palestinian community, West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, of course, well over 70% believe that October 7th, they, they look upon it positively. That's from Khalil Shikaki, who's a, who's a terrific pollster and longtime presence on the scene. That's a deeply deflating number. And at the same time, when Joe Biden talks about a two-state solution, or we talk about a two-state solution, which I still think is, is the only way forward, um, that gives Israelis enormous pause to say nothing of October 7th itself and, and a great deal of history. At the same time, 
Palestinians are watching as thousands and thousands and thousands of men, women, and children are being killed in Gaza. The numbers are staggering. What's happened to Gaza physically is unspeakable. And so these two communities, as complicated as they are internally, just see past each other at this point in a way that was, I guess, always the case, but now in a, just a, in a radically more profound way. You talk to Israelis and there's a sense of uniform grief and vulnerability. What October 7th did was shatter the illusion upon which the idea of Israel was based, that there would be a place in the world that Jews could sleep through the night. And historically, that had not been the case. And at the same time, the reality of the creation of Israel had been deferred and deferred and deferred, which is the Palestinian condition. And so back and forth we go, and to actually be there is to feel this more profoundly than to just read it. That's such an important point. And I, listening to you, I have to say, there's really almost a feeling that the two-state solution exists as a sort of a, a figment of our collective dreams here in the United States in some ways far more than it does at the moment on the ground for either the Palestinian community that you're describing or uh, Israelis. Well, I don't think that any potential successful opponent of Bibi Netanyahu can campaign on a two-state solution anytime soon. Mm. So Benny Gantz, who's an army general and right now in the war council and in this kind of uh, temporary unity government, Benny Gantz never uses the phrase two-state solution. He uses the phrase separate entity. He has to dance around it. At the same time, and this is what this piece is largely about, Bibi Netanyahu, whose po poll ratings are, are a misery, they're in the 20s, he is proposing himself no longer as Mr. Security, which he no longer can, having presided over the biggest security disaster in the history of the state of Israel. He can no longer campaign on that. What he's campaigning on implicitly is, I am what stands between hmm. uh, you and a potential Palestinian state. Now, he's always been that, but that's his point of emphasis now. I will push back Joe Biden. I will push back the Europeans. I will push back the South Africans with their sanctimonious uh, court and all the rest. I am what stands between you and perdition. One of the themes, David, in that piece, and you've been looking at Bibi Netanyahu for decades, and he has been a piece of American politics in one form or another for a very long time. He sort of mastered the capacity to go on TV and play a role in our politics. Did you form a sense of his perception of America's role in this conflict and how he is trying to use American politics? He takes what he can from American support and he pockets them hmm. and gives nothing. And he has repeatedly said to Israelis, I know how to deal with these people. You know, he has an, when he speaks in English, he has close to a perfect American accent. He doesn't make grammatical mistakes. He doesn't come off as an old Sabra, totally Israeli to an American audience. He has this kind of American part of him having studied at MIT and he worked at Boston Consulting Group and so on. But when I talk to uh, former American presidents, their, and present ones, by the way, their resentment of Netanyahu is very profound. Mm. They feel that he doesn't tell the truth. He transparently uh, 
plays with American support and affections and, and all the rest in the most cynical way. And that's part of his appeal to people on the right in Israel. Do you think he has any concern for the damage that he may be doing to Biden and um, or any thoughts about whether he would prefer to see Trump reelected? <laughs> well, that's interesting because until October 7th, you would think, and I know that this to be a fact, having talked to people around him, that their favorite person to deal with, despite the chaos, was Trump. Look what they got from Trump. They, they, they got to forget about the Palestinian question almost entirely. The Abraham Accords were precisely what the Israelis uh, under Netanyahu wanted, not only because it would produce relationships with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and all the rest that would be stable, which is hardly a bad thing, but it was an arrangement that allowed them, everybody, to push the Palestinian question off to the side in a profound way. So, you know, they liked that. Then along came October 7th, and Joe Biden got on an airplane and em literally embraced, embraced Netanyahu at the airport uh, physically and, and politically and in every other term. And I think if Joe Biden were to run for prime minister... In Israel today, he would he would win by you know many many points. <laughs> the affection there is profound for him, uh, in a way that it never was for for any number of other American presidents. Barack Obama was being one of them, and and Netanyahu and Obama had a terrible terrible relationship. And by the way, Biden and Netanyahu hardly have a perfect relationship, and and now Netanyahu is is, is exploiting the relationship with Biden in in a way that is is. I think, driving the Biden administration to distraction and beyond. David, I'm so glad you brought up that point. It's often been mischaracterized, I think, as, it, you know, Biden and Bibi, that they had a sort of a, a friendship because it goes back so many decades. But in, in reality, you write in your piece that it, it's a very tortured history. And, oh, that yeah. you know, there's an almost callous disdain, I think was the phrase you used, uh, among Netanyahu and his advisors for the Americans who are at the same time sustaining and supporting Israel, uh, both materially and also, you know, in terms of the geopolitics. What now after the bear hug moment has has faded? What comes next? Well, it didn't take long. <laughs> no. It didn't take long. In the very first week after October 7th, within several days— the Israelis were very serious, particularly Netanyahu and his defense minister, were very serious about a second front against Hezbollah in the north. By the way, a very real concern and has been a very real concern for, for a long time. And there was real concern that Hezbollah was going to follow suit with Hamas. And they were, the, the idea was to preempt this and have a preemptive attack into Lebanon. And had it not been for the Biden administration's extremely ardent opposition to this, they, 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 said to the, they said to the Israelis, and this is, by the way, according to high-level Israeli sources as well as American sources, the Americans said to the Israelis, our intelligence tells us that this is not necessary at this time, not necessary. And in addition to the Americans, both General Eisenkot and General Gantz also opposed this preemptive strike. So Bibi back down. So Biden has given his full-throated support of Israel so far, but he has also kind of tried to push back at the same time we've seen um, against uh, Netanyahu's most aggressive impulses. I mean, B Biden famously said in his speech in Tel Aviv in October, Justice must be done. 
But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. You know, this reminds me so much of the warnings that were given to the United States right after 9-11 by British intelligence. Um, The head of British intelligence came over to the U.S. and warned Bush and and U.S. intelligence heads that if you hit the mercury, it's going to spread all over the world. Be careful what you wish for and how you act now. And we didn't listen. I mean, I, I no, wonder. we didn't, and neither did the British, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they were one uh, to talk. But, 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 let, but let's let's also pose the Israeli dilemma. I, I'm extremely skeptical of and critical of the way this war has been prosecuted in Gaza and the scale that, at which it's been done. However, let's remind ourselves of the situation in a relatively peaceful period between Gaza and the Israelis, and there are lots of complicating details. To that, it's not that I'm, I'm I'm unaware of them. A long planned assault of the bloodiest and most disgusting sort took place, in which over a thousand people were murdered, butchered, raped, killed. I mean, the scale of this of this attack and its effect on the Israeli psyche was and remains hugely profound in a geography that is not America and Afghanistan. It takes place in a geography the size of New Jersey, in which Gaza is, as it were, a county <laughs> on, on the western coast of that, of that small spit of land. And at the same time, Hezbollah follows suit to a limited degree in the north. Iran is making as much mischief as it possibly can. There are military assaults coming from Iraq and as well as the Houthis are attacking ships. And Israel is in a moment of unprecedented weakness, not since 1973 as it felt this vulnerable. And its losses and its casualties are not military, but they're civilians in kibbutzim and villages and the rest. And by the way, it's not in the, it's not in the West Bank settlements. It's in these, you know, these are Israelis that have, if anything, uh, represent, um, you know, the center and center left it is extremely threatening to to Israel in an, in an existential way if you talk to Israelis. So that's that's what's presented to them. Do you think that the scale of that shock, combined with the specific political approach of Netanyahu, combines to produce a moment of potential real change, transformation? Uh, in the U.S.-Israel relationship? Does does Netanyahu perceive accurately, do you think, the mood in the United States, or does he overread his own knowledge of American politics? I think he's perfectly well aware of it, but his priorities are different than ours. Yeah. <laughs> what about the the dream that continues to live on? I've, I've actually been surprised by this, and I know Evan is reporting as well on where the Biden administration is at right now. But I've been surprised that there there does live on the dream uh, in some quarters of the, the White House that this kind of grand bargain with Saudi Arabia and the, the strategy of normalization is somehow not entirely dead. I, I, I think that's true, but I don't think it's going to happen next week. Because of the nature of the shock, because of the nature of the upheaval, it's going to take a long time. And remember what the situation in, in Gaza is. We're now at, are we at 25,000 people dead? The infrastructure of Gaza is in kind of half a ruin. And at the same time, there's a military infrastructure 
that is so much more profound there than anybody had any idea about. We knew that there were tunnels. What we had no idea about is that Hamas had invested almost entirely its aid from Qatar and elsewhere into this structure to be used precisely the way it's being used now. So that is a horrific development. And there's also Palestinian politics. You know, lots of Palestinians and will, will say, look, Hamas can't be defeated entirely. It is a presence in some way or another. You know, even people in the kind of the moderate Palestinians that one would talk to, it is woven into the fabric of Palestinian life. And Hamas's popularity now is, is greater in the West Bank than in Gaza. The notion that somehow this is a great shock and then everybody's going to come to their senses and the wealthy uh, Arab states are going to uh, rebuild uh, Gaza in 10 minutes and there'll be a grand bargain and peace and love will reign uh, is, is, I think, alas, uh, not to be. One of the senior leaders of Hamas just the other day gave an interview in which he said, we're not interested in a two-state solution. That has never been our goal. We are interested in and will continue fighting for, not just on October 7th, but again and again and again, for what is essentially an eliminationist politics. So, David, that, I think, before we let you go, kind of comes to the the natural and, and sort of horrifying question. David betrays his question at the beginning of the Iraq War to our friend Rick Atkinson, tell me how this ends. I did an interview with him, I think, within a day or two of October 7th. He's got a new book on the history of modern conflict. And Mm -hmm. he pointed out that Israel immediately went to maximalist war aims, that essentially they were saying the eradication of Hamas. And I've noticed that they've continued to, and Netanyahu has continued to say this. That has obviously not yet happened. It doesn't appear that it's a realistic possibility anytime in the near future. What would a victory for Israel even look like at this moment? I think that you have to admit that on the terms of the senior leader Hamas, Yahya Sinwar's intentions, that he won, that he won a great victory on his terms. He wants to be Saladin. He wants to be the great. He wants to have struck a huge blow against Israel, against the infidel. And on that level, on his terms, nowhere in his in his plans did he not anticipate a maximal or a huge reaction from Israel. Of course he anticipated that. <laughs> Hence the network of tunnels. He wanted to put the Palestinian question back on the table in the most uh, um, inflamed way. He wanted to, to completely upend the Abraham Accords because the Palestinians were being forgotten. He wanted to kill as many people as he could. He wanted to upend the notion of Israeli military strength and superiority in the region, which he did. And he wanted to upend the Israeli sense of security from day to day, which he, and I can tell you from being there, which he did. Now, to me, the consequences in human terms and geopolitical terms and what you and I hope for, which is an, an ability for two peoples and two states to exist in some state of security and prosperity, he does, that's not what he's looking for. And to a great degree, at least for now, 
he has, in a, in a woefully uh, inadequate metaphor, upset the apple cart for a very long time to come. It'll be a very long time to come before people like Itamar Ben-Gavir and Smotrich and, and, the, and the right on, on Israel will not be able to come forward and say, well, you know, how, do we, how are we supposed to deal with these people? And it will, it'll be a very long time to come before the radicals on the Palestinian side don't say, you know, we're dealing with a state that commits genocide in their, in their terms. The absolutists are in charge until otherwise notified. And it takes time for that to shift, which is why I think in the end, I still think, and maybe I'm a dreamer, that the two-state solution is uh, in a sense doomed to success because what other option is there other than a permanent state of war? But I don't think it's happening uh, in that American way of, you know, what is the off-ramps? Remember we talking about off-ramps about Ukraine? <laughs> it's one of my big triggers, David. <laughs> what what really happened in Ukraine? The, the borderlines have, have moved two inches and 200,000 people or so are dead. And, 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 and everybody is now finally realizing this, as opposed to the Ukrainians are going to quote-unquote win and, and uh, you know, everybody's going to leave Crimea and we're going to go back to status quo ante. That's not the world, unfortunately. It kind of boxes in Biden, though, really, doesn't it? It doesn't give him a lot of options. No. And, and you know, I think now I'm entering into, into your territory. It, it particularly hurts him among potential younger Democratic voters. And the margins here are so slim and the stakes are so high and his opponent is so... <laughs> I'll let Susan and Evan and Jane fill in the blanks, so what? That the stakes are tremendous. And Biden's choices uh, are not are not great. Biden's choices are not great. Uh, <laughs> There's the headline. There you go, 2024 <laughs> yeah. in a, in a yeah. nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad I could arrive and spread so much good cheer <laughs> among you. May I yeah. thank you personally for uh, taking the role of uh, doomsayer from me? Yeah. I'm very grateful. Uh, I guess for I'm your, happy to do it for once. <laughs> I mean, usually we specialize in it, but, but you might have topped us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, David. David, thank you for coming. Thanks so much. Bye. The political scene from The New Yorker will be back in just a moment. Oh, so, guys, hmm. what do you think? Just before the break, we started to look at how this war is affecting Biden's politics at home. I think David summed it up pretty crisply and uh, sort of gloomily, really. What do you make of that, Evan? Well, Amazingly, yeah, we just talked about, I thought, in useful detail how complex and interlocking all the pieces are. And then I would add just one more, which is, as, as, as we talked about at one point, the idea of getting Saudi Arabia to sign on to the possibility of a two-state solution is not in the immediate offing. However, there is also a domestic political driver, which is that part of the strategy is that they think that it's more likely to happen under a Democratic president than it would under a Trump presidency because Democrats in the Congress are not likely to agree to a mutual defense treaty with Saudi Arabia uh, under Trump. So that adds another ticking clock. And it's just the, the level of complexity involved in this moment is sort of mind-boggling. I want to just look for a second at what's happening in 
the Congress when it comes to this question? Because this is a period in which there's just been tremendous change around the topic of Israel. We talked about it a bit. There's a way in which it used to be an unquestioned piece of the Democratic Party foundational principles of entry into Congress that you would be, in a sense, supporting Israel all the time. And now we are in the midst of a generational change in which there has been a real reevaluation of that. You see it just in in the very specific form of take one district in New York City where you used to have Elliot Engel, who was a co-founder of the, in effect, the Israel caucus uh, among Democrats in the House. He was ultimately succeeded in a primary battle by Jamal Bowman, who is very explicit about his skepticism around Israel and its use of force against Palestinians. That magnified across this conference has meant that Israel is contending with a much more complicated political landscape than it would have been even a few years ago. And I think it makes it all that much harder, both for the Israelis to anticipate and then also for Biden to figure out what he can really count on here. Well, that's right. Let's get down to brass tacks here in terms of the electoral politics, because Jane, the, the math is the math for Biden. And, you know, a big question is, Is this such a divisive issue that is still going to resonate in November in a way that actually jeopardizes Biden and the Democrats from having key parts of their constituency turn out for him? You know, it's all in the sort of heat of the moment, right? You know, you had a lot of uh, even Democratic elected officials coming out who are very pro-Palestinian saying, you know, this is going to affect uh, turnout among young people, among Palestinian Americans in key states like Michigan. But Reality is such that, you know, maybe the fighting will have ebbed a long time since. Perhaps Netanyahu himself will be out of office by then. There are many, many unknowns. How do you assess the threat to Biden and to the Democrats in terms of just pure practical things like turnout and electoral outcomes? I mean, listening to David, I think there are two main worries. One, what he articulated was this is not something that's going to be resolved quickly. So I don't think that you can sort of say, well, maybe by, you know, the time of the election, it'll there'll be peace and flowers. This is not going away in some simple way. So that's issue one. And the other thing that he mentioned is, of course, how incredibly close this election appears to be and how you you, really Biden can't afford to see votes peeling off. And so when you look at a state like Michigan, where um, there is a, a large voting Muslim population whose leaders have said they can't vote for Biden at this point because of this issue that, you know, that's a great concern. And same with, you know, young voters. I think, though, the one thing that has not been factored in yet is that it's a choice. It mm-hmm. will be a choice between Biden and Trump. And really, are Muslim leaders going to look to Donald Trump to protect them better after the things that he has said? You mean about, Mr. Muslim Band? Right, exactly, Mr. Muslim Band. And are young people going to look to Donald Trump to, to uh, you know, give them a better world? I, I don't know. And we're not, we really haven't engaged in it as a choice between candidates when yeah. we look at these numbers. Evan, I want, I want to hear your I was take ask you a, on this no, no, as Susan, well. I want to ask your take on that issue, because I think it's an interesting one before we move ahead. But you saw just in the last few days this a, a kind of prime demonstration of these kinds of trade-offs. Here you had Joe Biden giving a, 
uh, a speech to the United Auto Workers, which in some not so subtle way is also about building votes in Michigan, where there are tens of thousands of union members there, auto uh, auto workers. Union and he did members. get their endorsement. He got their endorsement. He was also interrupted a series of times by uh, by pro-Palestinian protesters. How do you see the this in the end, as James well put it? An election is about trade-offs, ultimately. How do you diagnose, how do you predict these political risks will ultimately uh, net out for him? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the protesters because that's actually now becoming a staple of every Biden event in a way that is quite remarkable for a core part of his own constituency to decide in the middle of what appears to be such a consequential election year that they're willing to go after their own standard bearer. I mean, it's really a striking thing for an incumbent president of the United States. Without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. I do agree with Jane about the choice. And I also, I would say, think about young voters for a moment, where the numbers suggest that that visceral connection with Israel that older Democrats often have had is just not there. And we all have seen the stories of what's happening on American college campuses, which are being ripped apart by these questions around anti-Semitism, but at the same time, huge upswelling uh, of idealistic young people saying, you know, this war is unacceptable. Look at the horrific way in which it is being waged. And in that sense, it's reminiscent of the divisions of the Vietnam War era. And, I, you know, let's let's hope and pray that this one doesn't turn out to be like 1968 in terms of political violence, in terms of the actual rifts inside the country. But I do think it's an echo, at least for me, of that very, very yeah. dramatic political year. And, 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 and in part Biden, because you see Biden cast as Humphrey. Well, basically. that's right. In, yeah. in, in Vietnam was in a way, a great clash among American liberals. It was basically a moment of revelation where many realized there was a a profound difference between the American left and American liberals, you know, that those are not one and the same thing. I think that's what's happening right now on our college campuses and maybe in a preview of what's happening more broadly in the Democratic electorate. However, it's also a case of what in the end do you vote on? What are your personal interests? What are your national interests? And these are conflicting impulses. If you are a young voter and you care about reproductive freedom and reproductive rights, and you also care about the idea of justice in the world, well, in the end, right, unlike Vietnam, there is no conscription. There are no American young men or women who are going to be sent to fight in this war uh, against their will. There are Millions of American young women who feel that their basic human rights are at risk because of the consequences of the first Trump presidency and the rollback of Roe versus Wade. So, you know, this is going to be a theme you're going to hear from Democrats so much. And there's your choice for you. In the end, uh, you may decide that you have a more personal stake in the reproductive freedom debate here in the country than in the more abstract questions of war and peace in the Middle East. Well, I think, though, at the same time, it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on Biden to 
do something to ameliorate this crisis, this this humanitarian crisis that's that American weapons are being used in. Because I mean, it is personal. There aren't soldiers going over from the United States, but those are our weapons that we've sold and to to Israel, and and that's the argument being made by the left. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders, and so it is. If I were the White House, I'm sure that they must feel pressure to somehow stop the, the carnage at this level. I would yeah. actually even say that, you know, that's even a week ago, that moment. I mean, where they are now, interestingly, just in the last couple of days, you hear now what I would describe as sort of middle-of-the-road Democrats in Congress who are beginning to say extremely clearly uh, that they are planning for a day after Netanyahu. That is a that or maybe is a, hoping for a day. Well, after that's Netanyahu. and this is the first time nobody is calling for him to resign. But you see, you know, you people like Debbie Stabenow of Michigan saying, "I'm looking forward to the time when he's no longer the leader." I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse saying he's become an obstacle uh, to progress in the Middle East. I can tell you that this this does not happen without the White House uh, being in in a sense in conjunction with this, right? And. One thing I would also just add to this, because we've had an interesting discussion today about Netanyahu and Biden. And I would remind people that Biden's view of politics is that Tip O'Neill got it a little wrong. Politics is not local. Politics is personal. And the degree of disdain and contempt that Netanyahu has been projecting onto Biden and has been subjecting him to is uh, a story that is not yet finished. Well, it's interesting that there was a very contentious phone call between the two in December in which Biden essentially hung up the phone and then didn't speak to him for weeks. They've now spoken again, but they didn't didn't speak for four weeks at the height of this conflict in which the U.S. has exerted everything to try to shape a different kind of outcome that hasn't seemed to succeed. So how much, Evan, now do you see the political fates of these two leaders as being intertwined? You could see an Israeli uh, election, I suppose, or a vote of no confidence against Netanyahu even before the U.S. election this November. Yeah, I, I actually don't see them as being ultimately intertwined in the same sense that you know, our systems are extremely different now. And between now and November, Israeli politics will be moving at five times the speed that ours is. Um, and in the end, and, and Jane, I think, hit on the essential point that this is, as Biden would say, this is not going to be a choice between him and the almighty. It's going to be a choice between him and the alternative. And if you had an event like you had the other day that was intended to be the Democratic Party's big moment of declaring the risks to abortion access in this country, and ultimately there was a series of, of interruptions of protesters um, that is a pretty clear distillation of what is on the line here. And I think it's not just going to be about abortion access. It is also going to be about the recognition that conservatives on the court plan to extend that rollback to things like LGBTQ rights and perhaps even access to contraception. These are the kinds of issues that are going to be contending with Israel and Gaza uh, on the ballot and on people's minds. I'm so glad we had David on the show, but I have to say that he left us with a very, very sobering reminder that, uh, you know, we are so inward looking right now. And I was really just struck at how intertwined uh, these these stories are in a way that often doesn't get read back, that usually people want to talk about domestic politics almost uh, without 
a sense of the the incredible repercussions that they have for other countries in the world, the rest of the world. And this is one of those stories where uh, you can't you can't make that calculation. Susan, I think you hit it. You know, the great thing about having David here is ground truth. Mm. I mean, and one of the things the New Yorker can do is 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 actually report around the world. And um, it's incredibly valuable. Ground truth. You know, they used to say during the Iraq war that, uh, you know, generals like Petraeus, who I mentioned, he would come back to testify and say, you know, there's the Washington clock for the war and there's the Baghdad clock and they really don't ever match up. You know, mm. it, what's happening in Tel Aviv, what's happening on the ground in Gaza is is not what we're talking about here on any given day, is it, Evan? No. I mean, and, and uh, sometimes they can seem to be uh, completely disconnected. But I think today this is an example of the way in which you can't really make judgments about what's going to happen in American politics unless you understand what's happening in minute detail on the ground in Israel right now. Yeah. Also, he got in a Saladin reference, so. <laughs> <laughs> this has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Stephanie Karayuki. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.